I think we're going down the path of turning these third-party security reviews into the new password rotation. It feels like we're doing a lot of things, but we're not really addressing the actual risks. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak with Chris Castaldo, CISO of Dataminer, about mentoring young professionals to excel without burning out, what he feels would have helped his own transition into leadership, and why third-party security testing is becoming the new password rotation. As professionals, how do we streamline our transition into leadership? And once we're there, how do we empower those we lead to keep doing what they love without wearing them down? To that point, what are the self-imposed hoops we're making our security teams jump through just to say we've ticked a box? All right. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for coming on the show. If you would, for the listener, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show, a uh, listener for a little uh, little while now. But I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Dataminer. Been in cybersecurity 19, 20-ish years now. Started off as pen testing and eventually moved to management and different, different type of fun work. Uh, I know a lot of people think the you know, red teaming, pen testing stuff is, is super exciting, but there's a lot of other components that uh, I think are exciting in cybersecurity being management being one of them. Absolutely. I think that being in the movement to leadership isn't easy for everyone. Uh, it's a different set of skills. It's a different set of challenges. But the game for me was to try to be the manager that I wish I would have had maybe earlier in my career. I had some great <laughs> managers. I had some not so great ones. And I, I tried as a challenge to be a, a great one for the benefit of the technical people that I once was. Uh, yep. which is like the kind of transition you've, you know, you've been through. And do you think you get more sort of cred since you started off as a pen tester now as a CISO amongst your technical staff? That's an interesting question. I, I feel that uh, it does, but I don't, I don't know if it like, no one's come out and said like, oh yeah, you did pen testing. So I definitely, I definitely want to work for you as a manager. <laughs> I don't think those two things relate completely managing people is like you said, a completely different skill set, and not everyone is uh, set out to do that. I, I mean, just like pen testing, you start off, you know, making some mistakes here and there, and that's kind of same thing with um, with leadership. It's you know, really an art form. You can read all the pen testing books you want, you can go read all the leadership books you want, but none of those are really going to tell you how to be that individual. It's definitely. Uh, a learning process. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that one benefit is though, that if you were a former technician and you have a team that they know, or they, they should appreciate, I would think kind of what it's like uh, to work all night or to have to work on a technical issue, or, or maybe you're in charge of you know, technical security, but you're having to join all the outage calls because they think it's a security tool, which it very well might be. You know, the sort of the 
you understand the negatives and the work that goes into it rather than somebody who had never been a technician before that's now a CISO. It was kind of the, the direction I was going for to see if, if you think that, that now you're a leader, if that helps you connect better with your technical staff. It certainly gives me an advantage, I think, because I can see when people are at kind of the same phases in their career or experiencing similar things, you know, burnout being one of them, when you're in a role that you really, really love and working 10, 12 hours a day, like isn't a detractor for you. It's, you know, it's you love doing the work so much, but you, you have to take some downtime. I think that is an advantage I definitely have because I remember <laughs> I remember being in that exact same position. What's you mentioned burnout? Like what is one of your kind of tells for that, right? There's a fine line between passion and burnout. How did you manage that? Or how do you what do you look for in your team to make sure you're not sort of walking that line too far to say, hey, I've got passionate people that'll work all night, but how do I kind of rein them in or make sure they don't kind of overburden themselves? Is there is there a cue there that you have? Well, two things. Attitude at work. You can kind of tell if someone's answers get shorter in a meeting where they they might be um, more empathetic or something in in their responses to to their peers. And then the other um, would just be like time, time at work. Like if you're, I see you online at nine, 10 o'clock at night when there's nothing going on, there's no absolute need for you to be up and working, then that are, are kind of two pretty obvious cues that I, I like to use and that'll you know bring up good conversations and questions in our one-on-ones. I think those are good tells and some that sort of, I'm sure they let them just slide, right? Uh, you know, it's, oh, well, let them work or, or that person's just grumpy or whatever. But I think the combination or, or either, either one of those individually should take, should be incumbent upon the leader to take an extra couple moments to, to ask you know, in, in the next one-on-one, how are you feeling? You know, what's, yeah. So what, uh, in that vein, one of the questions I love to ask really of anybody I meet, what's some advice you would give your younger self? You didn't start off in leadership. You, you were on a technical track. You transitioned at some point. You know, this is a, a reflective question. Often in lieu of people having a good mentor, these types of answers generically, I think are good just for the listener and for everybody. So is there one or two things that you wish you had done differently uh, at any phase of your career? I would say at the beginning and all throughout, I really wish I had put more time into building my network. And that's both internal and external. So your network within your office, your organization, even as an individual contributor, those, those are helpful relationships to have, right? Not being so gung-ho in the technical work, I think that would have helped a lot more, maybe helped in my transition from IC to, to leadership. And that's certainly very important thing now as, as a leader, building those, building those relationships. And then external, on the external side, you know, having someone outside of your organization to bounce things off of, whether, whether it's a technical problem and it's something you can discuss, you know, if it's not uh, proprietary to your organization, or maybe it's an issue you're having with a peer, with, with a superior. Maybe it's uh, you know, someone you're having a difficult time getting along with in a cross-functional team or something. Being able to have that outside perspective and give you a little grounding 
certainly would have been, <laughs> would have been very helpful if I had prioritized that. Because I always heard that throughout my career, like, oh, you should always network. And I didn't really understand it because everyone just left it at that. And I would say, you know, inside your organization, setting up time to just go meet with leaders, even, even as an IC, go figure out what other teams are doing. What are they working on? What's important to them? Gives you a lot of context. And I think shows a lot of, <laughs> shows a lot of initiative. You know, if I saw an IC doing that, I'd be like, wow, they're, they're definitely kind of maybe ready for that next step if they do want to move into management, which not everyone wants to do. But if you're progressing to like principal, distinguished, you know, fellow type engineering role, those are critical skills to have, right? No question. But what, what's the, so perfect advice. However, why didn't you do those things? Because I think they're both related. They're different, but at the core, there was an ingredient that you weren't prioritizing. And what was that and why? Like there's a, is it an introversion? Doesn't seem to be the case, but may have been early in your career. Is it, is it a confidence thing? Is it just a lack of prioritization where you want to focus on tech and not think of, of others? Is it a siloed nature of work? Like what, what was the genesis, do you think, for you? Totally confidence, 100%. I definitely was of the mindset, which I think is kind of a, a bad place cybersecurity can get into where the tech is the most important thing. Right. You look at password requirement policies, like for years and years, like having a strong password was so important and rotating it and complexity and all this garbage and not really thinking about the human side of it. So why do I need to know what finance is doing or what HR is doing to, to do this penetration test? What, what does that have context to, to what I'm doing? That was certainly, um, whether it's, you know, a mindset of just who you know I, I worked with at that time and who I worked for, or that was just kind of the way cybersecurity was at that time. And I think there's there's a change happening now, but I would definitely say for me it was I didn't think it was important. So you didn't used to think it was important, and now you you kind of listed as something to prioritize. When was the tipping point where that change occurred? Were you still individual contributor? Had you moved into leadership? Was there an event? Like, what was your point of recognition of the need to do this sort of higher touch and external networking? Soon as I went into a leadership role, soon as I realized that I wasn't the number one priority, like my number one priority wasn't me anymore. It was the people that worked for me. Then I really like that was the eye opener for me. So you now, was it also then on the, on the grander scale against other managers? And, and I, don't, I don't mean it in an adversarial way, but there, in any organization, there's limited resources. There's limited time, there's limited budget, there's limited prioritization of, of effort. Was that part of it as well? Meaning that if I don't know these other people, I may need them as an ally to help get you know, something done? Is it, was it more of was it something else? Like what was the what started happening in your daily work day? And you're like, wait a minute, this isn't going the way I thought it would. Like, what was the thing? Being an advocate for someone other than myself. So I would say the realizing that I needed allies across the business came a little later because some, most of the organizations I worked in early on, there was another catalyst to having cybersecurity. And it was kind of a very privileged situation where we just kind of, we didn't have a blank check 
but there was a lot of people listening to what we were doing and it made it very easy to make decisions where I think most organization that's that's not the case. So there was probably some animosity from from other teams, I'm sure, that, you know, again, not being, you know, that empathetic probably didn't pick up on those types of things early on. So realizing that I need to prioritize my team and make sure they're getting what they need from other people that I have no control over. That was pretty eye-opening. <laughs> no, I think that's that's great advice and, and kind of a, a really reflective moment for you probably where it's about you're now a leader. There's people for which you're responsible. You need to make sure that they're able to do what they need to do. And part of that equation is making sure that you that you have relevance with the rest of the organization, that you need to have currency with them and know who they are and how to communicate and maybe even help them out, ideally, uh, along the way. So it's, that's a, a, a good point of reflection. I think you know all of us, I don't know how many careers there are, maybe there's many, I don't know, where we have this situation where we are groomed to be a technician, a very high skill position, you know, it can take years and years and years and lots of passion. And then one day, we flip a switch and we become management and we give away all of what we've learned for the most part to then try to be good leaders in that same sort of vertical. I don't know if that happens anyplace else, but it's, it's certainly challenging. I personally enjoyed it greatly, but it was difficult early on. I'm very glad I did it. I'm, it sounds like you're very happy you've made the move as well. Was there anything you, you miss or do you still miss being a technician ever? I certainly miss doing, doing the red team stuff and, at previous organizations where I've built red, blue, purple teams, I definitely find myself like wanting to participate in ops or at least be part of it because uh, it is still very exciting to me. That's where I got my start, but I'm still extremely excited to to help other people grow in their careers and and get to the point where they want to get to whatever whatever that is. You know, incredibly strong IC or an amazing leader. Yeah. I enjoyed being a technician. I had a ton of passion around it. Even at my best, though, as a you know, on the blue side or you know, as an intrusion analyst or whatever, I was on my best day, I was good. On most days, I was mediocre. Uh, I'm pretty hard on myself, but I, I cared a lot. Sometimes giving a damn is, is sometimes enough. Strangely, I never thought I wanted to go into leadership at all. In the end, I think I was probably better at, at leadership than I was a technician, strangely enough. But some of that came through a lot of self-reflection on the personal side back to you know items of empathy and and trying to figure out what motivates me and what makes my my brain tick all these things that then ultimately you could kind of reflect and share even understanding what your insecurities are and getting to the point which was hard for me personally to even share that with my team and say this is where I'm insecure this is where I'm not very good here's the two or three things I'm awesome at only one or two or three of those things. And the rest is why you're here kind of thing. And it took me a long time to get there to say those words. You know, I, I don't know. Do you, do you have any self-reflection kind of on understanding or any advice for the listener on looking inside as a leader and saying, okay, knowing what you're good or bad at, do, have you had those moments yet? Uh, and, and what have maybe been one of those? Being open to feedback Something I started as a manager was like journaling and writing stuff down just because there was so much more that I had to pay attention to that I, I couldn't remember it all. And the, the only way to do that is, is write stuff down. 
And anytime I would get feedback, I would try try my best to make sure I write, wrote it down, even if it wasn't in some type of one-on-one, if it was just offhanded uh, conversation I had with someone. And like, I'll go back and think about those things, you know, years later, you know, how I could have done that better. I would say one of the most difficult things I think for anyone, for, for me is, you know, really taking critical feedback, but making sure you're taking that feedback from people that you would go to for advice. Right. So that's, right. I think, a really important thing to kind of realize that you're always going to get feedback, sometimes unsolicited. And you need to make sure that you're taking that within context and really realizing that is this a one off incident? Did I really say something this way or was it really perceived that way? Uh, and I think it really goes back to like what we were saying earlier is, is building those networks and having that open dialogue with someone. But really, like when you're getting feedback, trying not to prepare a response and just like, sit and listen, which is really, really difficult to do. So, you know, being, being open to that feedback, which is sometimes hard, I think is, is really important and can help you grow a lot. Amazing advice. There was a hidden element in there, maybe not so hidden, but I want to take the candor. It was on maybe a four and turn it into like, put it on the, on a 10. <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned being careful who you take advice from or that feedback. It's always good to take feedback and take it, listen, write it down, reflect on it later. But there was a caveat in there and maybe you meant it, maybe you didn't. Is there, I'm trying to think back, how do I say this diplomatically myself, but there are some people who, if you're doing a great job or if you're out making change that are going to give you feedback who really probably don't have your best interest in mind. In fact, maybe they're even jealous, let's say. So some of their feedback, while it might be good, it may not be in the best interests of, of you. Is that kind of what you're saying? That take it from the people that you, that you trust or take it from the people that you would ask for advice on a good day rather than just a bad day? Absolutely. That's exactly it. Having, again, that, that network you can trust to get real feedback that's unbiased. And it's not meant in a way to just have an echo chamber, like only take criticism from people you like, like that. That's, <laughs> that's not what's, uh, that, that's not what I mean there, but making sure it's people that you would want feedback at any time from, right. right. If it's someone you disagree with all the time, or maybe someone that's just, you know, rude to you constantly, maybe that's not the, the right person to take feedback. And, you know, you were talking earlier about having great bosses and bad bosses, same, same thing there. Like if you're in a situation where you don't have a supportive leader, maybe that isn't the, the feedback you want to hang everything on at the end of the day and, and go home with that baggage. So kind of, you know, take things with a grain of salt sometimes. There was once, I probably shouldn't admit this, but there was a time once earlier in my career and I was no no gym. I worked hard. I worked as hard as anybody else, but I, I had my ideas and they were sometimes very colorful. And that resulted in sometimes some feedback uh, in the form of, you know, quarterly reviews that weren't always the best. And I remember getting one and they, they brought in like a manager, a team lead and, and our director in, and they're ready to all review this with me. And it's one of those things where you have to sign it at the end. And I can remember saying, 
they're expecting me to fight back. And all I said was like, I think this is one of the most well-written documents I've ever seen. I didn't, that's all I said. I said, does anyone have a pen? I just signed it. I said, thank you. And the review was done in about, about a minute. And they were all shocked because I read it, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to change their ideas on how they ran their team. So there's no point in wasting my lunch, which was right where this, this meeting was. And so to me, that popped into my mind. It's probably not the example you were going for. And there's, it's probably a little silly to bring it up, but I can remember signing that. And some listeners will know what I'm talking about. It was many years ago. I was much less gray and much thinner then, but, um, but I knew I wasn't going to change their ideas. I took their feedback. I read it and reviewed it ahead of the meeting. I signed it, but I went on with my day. I had my lunch with my friends instead. But yeah, that was my, 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 my bit of feedback there in terms of take all feedback, but don't, don't maybe stress over all of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I think those are really good. I, I liked your kind of the way you split that out. And all, all kidding aside, for the listener, you know, developing, having somebody that you can talk to outside of your company. And the benefit of that, hopefully, is they absolve themselves of the politics as well. They can just talk about an issue, which I think is very important. And that could be a peer or somebody your senior. Uh, either way, I think is really good. I think myself, I didn't do enough of that until a little later in my career, which, which was um, a bit of a penalty. Internally networking, I had friends in all different areas of the company. We'd go to typically go to lunch or hang out together, uh, even geek out, you know, after after work. So you could ha- you had this sort of underground social network to get things done. When you move into leadership, it's a little different. But I think those are for those listening that are maybe newer in their career. Work on both of those. Take Chris's advice and and take stock in that. So I have a question. Chris and I had a chance to chat earlier, and one of the formulas for the show is we kind of talk about something that's either an irritant often or something that inspires the guest. And right out of the gate, there was a topic that, that he brought up that I think is actually very good that not enough people are sort of calling out. Chris, what's your, what's your take? Uh, do your intro, if you would, on third-party risk. Is that something that you're really in love with these days? Not so much. Uh, I get the need for it, but uh, I think we're going down the path of turning these third-party security reviews into the new password rotation. It feels like we're doing a lot of things, but we're not really addressing the actual risks. So for for those who are listening, who they probably know what third-party risk is, but if somebody's new, Basic picture. So what is third-party risk and, and why do we typically have it? And kind of a short, a short intro. What is, why would an organization need that before we get into sort of what's wrong with it? So let's say your company sign up with a new vendor to process your W-2s at the end of the year. Lots of PII. You're going to be handing them you know, pretty much all of your employees' personal information, everything you would need to, to steal someone's identity. So you want to obviously do your due diligence and say, yes, they're secure enough to take that data from us and process it, store it, house it, whatever the service is at the end of the day. Got it. So we are somebody that we're sort of counting on uh, to do some work for us typically. And in most cases, they may or may not have access to sensitive information. And so in that point in time, we need to review them. Who is telling organizations typically that they need to review third-party risk? Like who, who, Who's the governing body that's sort of mandating this behavior? So when I've built these programs, it's it's been cybersecurity. It's been me. 
I've been the one uh, implementing these and uh, being on both sides and kind of seeing it progress over the last uh, five, eight years or so, I don't think we're making things better. So you have built, so you're sort of admitting that at least at some level you were, or maybe still are part of the problem, but in an effort to sort of discuss that, you're saying that there's an issue. Like what you mentioned password rotation, which I'm guessing that you mean that that sort of the changing of these passwords is sort of doing very little to slow an adversary and just sort of creating work that often causes outages and things like that. So it's sort of busy work. What's the busy work nature of third-party risk? Like what's the, what's the crappy part of this that's, that's sort of high effort, low yield? So if you look at any typical process in an organization, so you have a part of the business that wants to buy some product. They typically are out, you know, always outside of uh, cybersecurity or privacy. They go engage with the vendor, they do their due diligence, find someone that, that meets all of their requirements. And then there's a, an additional process that comes in where maybe IT needs to review, make sure it has uh, I don't know, single sign-on support or something like that. And then cybersecurity comes in with a whole list and, and it can vary from organization to organization. Now, in the defense of, of some that are in incredibly regulated industries, they have absolutely no choice. Maybe there's some things they could do to tweak the process to make it better, but really at the, the end of the day, they have no, no option. But most organizations don't live in that type of environment. So you'll see things from the well-intentioned uh, SIGs or from the shared assessments or I think the VSA from vendor, another vendor alliance, there's the cloud security alliance that has their questionnaire. So they'll come out with these and typically it'll then be the business's responsibility to go back to their most likely sales representative at the organization they're looking to procure and say, hey, we need to fill this out. I can't fill it out. Can you fill it out? And that salesperson might fill it out themselves. They might send it to someone internally to do that. So we're extending the sales process. So now the business is upset because they can't buy the thing they want. The salesperson on the other side is upset because now you know they're not able to close in the time frame they would like to uh, typically close in. It's a whole big paperwork process. And there's uh, typically a lot of back and forth via email, maybe. Maybe they have some uh, system where you log in and you can answer these questions, but it varies greatly from organization to organization. So if I'm an auditor or a lawyer and I hear that you don't like these processes and maybe there's been a breach or maybe there's an issue, like what answer would you give back to me? I'm going to say, well, clearly you're negligent because you don't want to, you know, if you don't do these, clearly you're negligent. You're a bad CISO. You're a bad company and you're, you're culpable and, and I'm going to write an audit finding or I'm going to you know, engage in some sort of action against your company. Is that the right answer from their side? Should, should they be upset if, if you don't believe this process should exist or, or be modified? I, I think that's certainly a contributing factor to the state we're in right now. It's probably a bit of CYA in some cases as well, saying, you know, hey, look at all this stuff we've done. We checked this box. We got all these questions answered. We had an analyst review all these answers and come up with some number that uh, you know tells us if this is risky or not. 
But really at the end of the day, the business is 99% of the time going to override that. Even if you've said, this vendor is super risky, we shouldn't sign up with them. If that at the end of the day is going to reduce spend or increase revenue, it's going to have some benefit to the business where that risk is worth it. Then if you're making exceptions all day, what, why are you doing the, why are you going through those, uh, those motions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so we have different layers of bad here. So one is we have a kind of a manual process, even if it's automated, it's still kind of manual. I think the other thing we haven't covered yet is that it's, it's point in time, right? Yeah, exactly. You're, you're getting, uh, one bit of that organization. Now, if you're that, that legal team or that auditor, you're going to ask, well, you know, show me your annual review right. of that vendor, right? So now, now it's an ongoing process through the life of that contract. So yeah, this, it's a lot of time consumed. So that's kind of the second. And then the third is if the business is going to sort of do what they want anyway, the delta between wanting to do business and the relative risk, that gap has to be owned by somebody. Now, talk to us a little bit about that, right? So there's a, the business says, we're still going to do business with these folks. And Chris, your security team just rated them a 50 out of 100, which is failing. So we're going to do business anyway. And I'm the EVP of, of making money. And I, sign, <laughs> I, I say that we're going to do it anyway. And I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in your process. And, uh, and I'm not going to entertain sort of the documentation around it even. I'm going to move on with making money which is fine. But you now have this piece of paper that says 50 out of 100. So this is sort of toxic in essence. Tell us about what issue does that cause? So really, it should be my job to figure out how the business can use that vendor. How can we move forward and reduce risk as much as, as, much as possible? It, might, it, it will never be zero. But how can we help the business use that vendor in the most secure way possible. So is that, do I need to jump on a call with that vendor and talk through with them? Like, hey, we'd like to see these changes. Obviously, if you're pre-MSA or, or whatever T's and C's you're signing, you have a little leverage there. If, if this is an existing vendor, you don't have too much vent, uh, uh, leverage at that point. But is there something legally we could work into the contract? Is there some additional language we could add and have some other protection. Like every protection in cybersecurity doesn't need to be a technical control, right? You should be working with your GC, your general counsel, and having maybe stronger language in the contract, right? Maybe you put audit rights in there. You know, there's there's so many other things that can be taken care of and addressed without this giant process of filling out paperwork. So who signs off on this then? So do you, Chris, do you own this? So, so when if, let's say there's a problem and now, now I'm the auditor and the lawyer both, you know, I'm, I'm external audit and an angry lawyer somewhere and you have signed off on this and it's a 50 out of 100, maybe it was initially a 50 out of 100 and you've had some conversation and, and relative to that, you've made it a 60 out of 100, which is still failing, but it's better. But now you had, do you sign off on that organizationally? Should, should you be the one that sort of owns that? It's interesting uh, because I've had this conversation multiple times. Should it be me? Should it be the business owner 
that is going to own that vendor? Should it be legal? Should it be the COO? I think that question is, and that answer is going to be different at every organization. Most, I, I feel it should probably live with the CISO because they should have full understanding of that risk. And again, you should be communicating that back to the business so they understand this well. But I, th- I think at the end of the day, it, it would come down to the CISO, just like if we put something erroneous in, in an MSA that would come back to legal, right? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the business that owns that would be, it would be your GC. So I think the, the obvious answer would be the CISO, but I would bet that is very different from organization to organization, especially ones that maybe have a uh, chief risk officer or something like that. But as the person giving advice, so you, you've right now in this moment, you're giving advice to people listening to the show and it's good advice. You have a situation where you have built this framework of really risk evaluation criteria. There's something that's been entered into this third-party risk process, and it's going, to, it's going to generate a number or a letter or a grade. And that's sort of the outcome of that is yours to own. You sort of own that, the creation, the engine that built that artifact. But you don't own the acceptance of the risk. And so if you have to sign off, you're not the one that does the final deal. That's what I'm saying. So the contract is above your pay grade, which it should be. You have been asked by your company to generate an, an evaluative process, and you have. But my, my problem is when a negative outcome occurs from a cyber perspective or from sort of a, a breach of duty that falls, that's more on the cyber side, right? So they, they lose a hard drive, they have a breach, uh, their credentials get popped, whatever. All that negative outcome comes squarely back to you. Totally. <laughs> So is there, is something out of balance? And I know there may not be a perfect answer to this, but for those who are wrestling with this issue, what's the advice you have? Because the neg- if the negative outcome, if the pain only finds you, then there's less incentive to really have kind of an, an, something that's more of an honest review. Any thoughts there? That's where I'd say documentation comes into play. And if you've ever been through any type of audit, you know how important documentation is. So anytime you're making an exception, it needs to be thoroughly documented. If, if there was a meeting that you had to have with your peer executives to walk through the risk, why we should or should not accept it, all the meeting minutes should be documented. So all, all of that should be collected in, into one place. So in the unlikely event that something does happen, we can understand You know, when everyone's freaking out and your cortisol levels are super high and everyone wants to blame someone, we can go back and have a, a thoughtful conversation of how did we get to this point and, and why. So I still feel like the, the risk, the, the CISO would still own that. I'm sure there's people that, that disagree and have, have different uh, experiences or requirements in their, their business, but I think most places that, that still lives with a CISO. So I want to cover kind of warning signs So maybe they don't know if they've got a bad third-party risk review process. I want to cover some of the warning signs. And then I want to talk about, you know, the foundation we laid for this is that we're we're kind of wasting our time, that it's the password rotation. So what do we do about it? Or is there anything we can do? So the first piece, again, is what are the warning signs? You and I had a chat earlier, and you mentioned two kind of nice indicators. And if if we, we we talked about a lot of things. Do you remember what those were? So one would be exceptions. Yeah. So are you making more exceptions 
to your policies and procedures to sign vendors on or, or bring on new vendors. That's a huge warning sign. The other, I would say, uh, and this, this is highly dependent on your internal network. Do you have a strong relationship with your sales organization, with your you know, leadership for sales operations? Are you getting that information back that's saying like, hey, you know, your requirements that you're um, putting on our sales folks, that's creating you know, a one-week, a two-week, a three-a-month delay in closing deals. And there's, there's a couple things to unpack there, right? If you're not getting that information, that might be a warning sign that your relationship, your relationship's not very good with that team. But if you are and you're seeing that, that timeline continue to expand, then there's, there's definitely some retooling that needs to happen. And I've seen both sides where it's extended the entire sales process out weeks or months just to complete this process. And for very very simple vendors, right? There's, there's no reason to send a new vendor that's going to be selling you furniture a 1,600-question SIG core. <laughs> right, right. There's no point of that, like they're going to swipe a corporate credit card. You've got your protections from you know, whoever your corporate credit card is. If that gets stolen, like the risk there is very low. I've seen that in much larger organizations, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees, they have a whole team just dedicated to third-party risk where it's just, we're sending it to everyone. Everyone's getting it. Yeah. And that's pretty short-sighted, but it's probably because somebody put pressure on them to behave that way. Somebody sort of up the chain as well. So I think for those listening that are either a CISO or maybe wanting to become one, or maybe even outside to say, you know, if you just have an exception machine, if the exception process is slowing deals, which you covered, both warning signs. There was actually another warning sign that's a little um, more human that was, I thought, interesting. Do you have a massively huge third-party risk team was the other other sort of point you gave as a warning sign. It doesn't always have to be a, a bad thing, but that you've got the amount of resources that are applied to the issue, right? I think that was another interesting one that's saying like, is that the team could be too big. It could be inefficient by virtue of the fact of its size. Yep. Absolutely. So you're you're doing so many of these that now you've got to hire full-time employees just to churn through all the data that that is coming back. Certainly an indicator that maybe, you know, step back, let's look at the process. Are we applying resources in the best way possible? Like you said earlier, we've got we all have finite resources and are literally picking and choosing every day what what risk do we address, what do we not with those resources. So I think that's an excellent indicator that maybe the process needs to have an evaluation of itself. So those are warning signs. We talked a lot about kind of covering our bases there. What do great third-party risk organizations have that bad ones don't? Well, that's, that's a really good question. So I would say in an ideal scenario, and I don't know I don't know if I've come across that ideal scenario, but looking at it really from a human perspective, who are your users? So if you're designing a third-party risk program, my users are my internal sales team, whoever they're selling to on their side and that you need to know your product. So are you selling to technical people? Are you selling to non-technical people? So that that's going to change what you can request, how much information you're going to need to give them. So saying, 
I need your SOC 2 type 1 report. Maybe your salesperson uh, knows what that is, but maybe the person they're selling to has no idea what that report is, right? They might not know even who in their organization to ask if they have that. So there's really like a, a design uh, and user experience process that needs to happen, I think, and accepting when those things do come back. So let's say you're onboarding a vendor, you've given them this questionnaire and they provide you a bunch of certifications. And yes, we all know, cert, uh, you know, compliance is not security or certifications are not security. Yep. We all get that. Everyone said it for years and years, but there, there is a purpose there. There is documentation that a third party came in, looked at these things and said, yes, they are in place. And then if we're now saying those are not valid, that this third party attestation of our security is not valid, then, then you're going to have a really hard time convincing people to like go to this new system or use this new customized thing when these things have been in place for years and have been accepted for years. So if there's additional things like getting on a phone call, I've seen that too, where teams will just refuse to like have a conversation. So it's really hard to communicate if no one wants to communicate. Absolutely. You know, I think the other thing I was just listening to you now uh, that I was thinking about is what if this is probably maybe my worst idea of the day <laughs> what, 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 when there's many, what if there was a clause? I mean, are any businesses this sort of real with themselves to the point where they say, hey, look, we're going to do business with this third party no matter what. So there's sort of this hand of God element to the contract, meaning it doesn't matter how bad they are, we're doing business with them. We still need you to evaluate them. But knowing that ahead of time, like, would it be worthwhile to talk to your sales team and have, have that in there to say, hey, this is going to happen politically no matter what? Like, there needs to be a checkbox somewhere on Chris's form before the evaluation starts. Is that helpful? Does that exist? Have you heard of that? And, and, you know, does that change the, the tone and the demeanor of these things any? I don't think I've heard of that specifically. I have felt that in initial conversations with onboarding a new vendor. No one said it explicitly like, we don't care what you say, we're going to use this vendor. Again, that's being in tune with the people you work with and, and knowing what they, reading between the lines and knowing what they mean when they say something. So I don't know if I would put that checkbox on there because I feel like everyone would just, would just check that box. Yeah, um, and say we're gonna we're gonna use this no matter what. So I think that would be helpful to know up front. Yes, but I wouldn't want to advertise that option. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I said earlier it's a bad idea, but it it's. A, <laughs> but I kind of think that there are cases where we know this is going to happen, and if there's the EVP of making money says this is going to happen, you kind of know it's going to happen. So if I had an email say, "Hey, this is your preferred vendor, and it's going to happen no matter what." Just send that to me and I'll put that in my report. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that is the only option, right? Let's say you're picking out um, an HR, a uh, new HR system. There's only so many vendors that can support certain types of organizations. So you're yeah. really kind of limited, right, by, by the option. So you can't just say, nope, none of these work. Well, that's all the HR systems, <laughs> right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And it's, I do think, though, that it kind of gets back to the advice you gave earlier, which is back to 
your network, back to being social, back to picking up the phone. Now you can't do it all because of these, you know, you're going to get overburdened. You're going to turn into, into, you know, third-party risk, Chris, and we need you to be CISO, Chris, but you're only one person. But if your team does that, I think that you'll get good results, but then kind of knowing what they're doing to say, Hey, if this is going to happen politically, no matter what, let's tell us that, put it in writing, right? Let you, cause again, you can't own all the pain. You can evaluate, you can do your job, you can assign the risk, you know, do the evaluation, but owning all of that, I think is what too many security teams are doing today, which then creates, I would say, these sorts of machine of a process kind of thing, like this, like in this example, third-party risk, where it's just churning out exceptions, churning out volume with little yield, with little real security in the end. Yep, absolutely. Is there anything else you want that you would share on that? Like any other quick wins or maybe even technical process you've adopted to say, you know what, if you guys do this one thing, you're a small vendor, but if you manage this one thing this way, you know, I'm more likely to pass you. Anything that you've picked up along the way that you'd like to share? Transparency. Oh my God. I can't, I can't say that enough. Just be, just be honest with what your state is. Like this isn't some like kind of gotcha thing that I would be trying to go through. I'm speaking from like as if I'm onboarding a vendor and you know I'm speaking to them. Like I can tell really, really quickly when you don't have any everything in place. So if you don't have, uh, you know, if I ask you if you have a sim, like, and I don't really know your organization and you don't have one, like, it's not going to be the end of the world. Just tell me that. Like, <laughs> there's, I can't tell you how many calls I've been on with vendors because I really prefer just to get on a phone call, like a 30 minute call and avoids so much back and forth in email. And I can get all the information I need and, and make a very quick risk based decision for the organization. But I, I've been on calls where there's just like, all this like dodging and ducking of questions and we don't want to answer this and answer that. It's like, this, like I'm not the IRS. Like we're not, <laughs> we're, we're not going to not do business with you based on one of your questions. So, and maybe that's me. Maybe I just need to say that up front on phone calls or something, but yeah, transparency that at least for me, that, that sells me every time. If you're like, yep, we don't have antivirus. We don't do patching. Like we know <laughs> we're in a bad place. Like as long as you're honest about it, like that's super helpful for me. Yeah. Not saying that uh, that's gonna <laughs> win really high marks on uh, not patching or having AV or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's it's always very obvious when someone is trying to to dodge questions. So yeah, transparency for me wins wins every time. No antivirus, but we promise that the chairs you ordered will be on time. Right. <laughs> exactly. On that note, we close on, uh, generally close on a similar question each time. And as we all know, the new CISO is the name of the show. So what does, to you, what does being a new CISO mean to you, Chris? Building relationships. Uh, it goes, goes back to the, this whole conversation that's so, so important. I really view the cybersecurity organization as a service back to the business. And if you really kind of approach things that way, if you really treat yourself as a vendor where there are many other options and the business could just decide like you're not the right vendor anymore, I think that really changes the tone, how you speak with people, how you interact with people, just kind of being a good customer success manager really at the end of the day. 
I like it. I think more people need to adopt that that approach. That's a good way of thinking about it, uh, that you you are a service provider, your entire organization, starting with you. That's fantastic. Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking time with us today uh, to be on the show. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. And do we have one, one more second for me to kind of make a, a little announcement? Absolutely. Chris, let's hear the announcement. Yeah. So I'm super, super excited. I just signed a book deal with Wiley and my book will be coming out in uh, summer of 2020 titled Startup Secure, uh, Baking in Cybersecurity from Founding to Exit. It is, I'm specifically writing it for founders. So folks that maybe aren't technical, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, wanting to be an entrepreneur myself and went through, you know, all the top 10 books an entrepreneur should read or top 10 books a startup should read. None of them, none of them talk about cybersecurity, not a single one. Or maybe I just didn't get to that, that specific list, but I read a lot of them and I feel like there was, there was something missing there. And in addition to that, I've decided I'll be donating a hundred percent of my first year proceeds to homes for our troops. Fantastic. That's awesome. Uh, one more time, give us the name of the book again. Yeah, it is, it is a mouthful. So it's uh, Startup Secure, Baking in Cybersecurity from Founding to Exit. And book release date again will be? Summer 2020. Okay. Now, we, now the, if there's one thing that'll change in this formula, it could be that because you're still writing the book now, I bet, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm about yes. halfway done. Okay, perfect. Yeah, no, I... Those can be very time-consuming, and you're, you know, starting as a new CISO or you know, at a new company, and all the other demands. Uh, well, congratulations, and that's awesome. So, great topic from a great author for a great cause. So, thanks again, Chris. Awesome, thank you. You're very welcome. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic, or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.